So good evening to you all. Now we're going to do the Dharma practice of giving and listening to a talk, which is a thing in and of itself, practice in and of itself. So don't worry so much about trying to remember what's said in the talk just attend to it with some receptivity and you'll probably get the maximum benefit from it. The theme I want to talk about tonight is what we get out of practice. And I'm going to touch on a number of different things and including how practice, Vipassana practice, tends to open, what that progression is. And also talking about some of the beautiful qualities of mind that open and are developed in practice as well, as well as some real-world, relative benefits of practice. So it's an interesting thing about Buddhism that it has an emphasis on suffering. So there it is right at the beginning, the first noble truth. There is suffering, the truth of suffering. And while some people find that to be a rather unpleasant way to start a conversation (laughs) and perhaps think that this whole system should come with some sort of trigger warning. Um, I myself found it actually quite refreshing. Because in hearing the first noble truth, I realized that it was recognizing and affirming for me some of the things I had already been noticing. So self-validation, of course, is always a pleasant experience, even if it's pointing in the direction of the truth of suffering. And there was something about this truthfulness that was quite brave, actually, and trustworthy in that it wasn't trying to sell a particular pastel version of reality. It wasn't uh, saying that. I would be able to be in a bliss state 24 hours a day or um, that I could find another human being that I could uh, be devoted to who would be an all-knowing and all-perfect person and they would love me into wholeness and wisdom or any of that. Instead, It just spoke about things that can't really be denied if we're honest. Truths about old age, sickness, and death, and getting what you don't want, and losing what you do want. A kind of complete review of parts of life that we tend to want to skip or turn away from. But this was true, and this was courageous. And I also felt that in starting the discussion right there with the truth of suffering, there was a kind of confidence in it. They're putting it right out there at the beginning, so they must believe or they must think that you can do something with this information (laughs) other than become deeply (laughs) depressed and discouraged. So there was an encouragement, actually, to take on this direct confrontation with things and a view that somewhere, somehow, within the capacities of human beings, there was a way that you could be in touch with this truth, come into harmony uh, with it, and be okay. That you could actually be in touch with reality and have that be all right. And with this, there was a lack of requirement of blind trust which never would have worked for someone of my particular temperament. So I wasn't required to believe in things that I couldn't see. I wasn't required to uh, take somebody else's word for it. Instead, it was talking about 
seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, cognizing. And the view was presented that I could understand directly through guided self-effort how suffering was created and how it was released. I thought, that, well, that's a pretty bold claim if they say that's possible and they put it out there and say, here's the way you go about doing this, why don't you try it? Hmm. So this is interesting. You know, this whole system starts with suffering and the exploration of suffering. So you may wonder at a certain point in this, well, where is the happy stuff? (laughs) So you may have wondered that on this very, very retreat, given that you've been here, most of you, uh, either four and a half weeks or two and a half weeks, you know, uh, okay, the suffering, the suffering, the suffering, let's get on with it. Now, where's the other parts, the other pieces that they talk about as being part of this journey? You know, when do we get the payoff of this, given that the retreatants have been mostly well-behaved, you know, there haven't been like any riots in the dining hall or anything like, when are they going to slide the goodies across across the table and give it to us? So I'm going to give them to you tonight. You ready? <laughs> okay. We already had chocolate at dinner, so. But we're going to do it in an indirect manner. So, now I will tell you why you cannot go to happiness directly through this method. You want to know the secret? Okay. Well, I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) Okay, the reason we can't go to happiness directly is because the basic teaching is that suffering, or dukkha, is caused by craving which is rooted in ignorance, in knowing or understanding things wrongly. So that means that if ignorance isn't addressed, right at the front end of everything, the craving will remain and the craving causes suffering. So that's an interesting piece. So you could say that this whole system is designed to clear up the diluted craving which is the cause of us being not happy. And when the dukkha is met, seen, and understood, wisdom arises. And wisdom is what causes the end of what you might call discretionary human suffering. Therefore, the means and the methods of this practice have to cultivate wisdom. But a really important piece of this is it doesn't cultivate wisdom just of the head variety. So you can't think yourself into awakening. You can't reason yourself into awakening, although those are useful (laughs) supports not to uh, degrade them. But the kind of wisdom that's being talked about also has to do with the cultivation of heart qualities. So it's not just the head and heart, however, it's also wisdom in relationship to the senses and to the body. So the full range and expression of our immediate, our subjective human experience is engaged as part of this practice of awakening. This wisdom arises in relationship to what is and what can be directly known. So we have to come into close connection with these various aspects of our beings and our immediate experience at those six sense doors and stay there. So when I say, you know, we need to get close in and get connected with these six sense doors, what I'm talking about is the establishment of mindfulness, which is coming to understand what is present in an immediate, receptive, uh, interested, and kind way. 
And then I also said something about staying there. So seeing the stream of experience, learning to rest awareness right at the mouth of the bubbling stream of what's arising. And then the next piece is investigation. This is the testing portion where we respond to the Buddhist challenge where he said, come and see, check it out. Learning to touch and receive and to know what's presently arising as it is and letting go of concepts and that smokescreen, that cloud of papancha. Which is another way of saying getting in touch with immediate, unmediated reality as we can directly know it, directly know it for ourselves and staying there. And then getting the view, getting the understanding from that place of connection, not from our ideas in our head about what should be, what was, what will be, what might be, what might mean, you know, just resting right there knowing right there at the mouth of the stream where things come into being. Finding that place. Finding that place. And then not picking or choosing about what's known. Letting what's there to manifest manifest and letting go. So that's the initial task of finding happiness. And then if we can do that, liberative wisdom starts to arise. So with the establishment of this mindfulness and the development of continuity, the system begins to notice certain important things. And this, the, this is the byproduct of this kind of direct knowing within the context of the Eightfold Path. And I tend to use this phrase the system, the system. But what I, what I mean when I say it is the whole system. The heart, mind, the body, the senses, the emotions, the larger intelligence of this relative being. So this system starts to notice some important things. So what does it start to notice? A first thing is there's some clarity about the context and the type of effort that's required to do this. So, you know, we try, we try, try, try really hard to figure out what's going on so we can make it okay in the immediate sense, right? We struggle for control, we make a lot of effort, we spin, we get desperate, we redouble our efforts, and then it's still, we still can't get a grip on it. And a good deal of meditation practice is over-efforting followed by aversion, exhaustion, doubt, and confusion. <laughs> Have you noticed that? It's not for lack of trying, right? There's a lot of trying. There's, there's just some nuance piece that hasn't quite clicked in yet. Right? So, here's a poem that reflects this experience, you know. The other teachers are bringing in poems, so. (laughs) I thought I I would too. So this is a, a poem by a yogi who has just made that kind of effort I just described. So it's called The Lament of a Discouraged Yogi. I try to make it happen, the breath is being bad. (laughs) I pull out a mental ruler and give my mind a whack. It doesn't like that feeling, and so it pushes back. It heads for sloth and torpor and takes a little nap. (laughs) And when I do awaken, self-judgment is on high and then a flare of anger and doubts about the ride. I'm really, really trying to make it happen right, but since it isn't going well, I'm calling it a night. (laughs) It isn't going to happen, this stuff is just a crock. 
I could try ayahuasca, though that can be quite tough. (laughs) I'm looking for a vision, a sign that I'm okay. I think I'll check my cell phone. Maybe God has called today. Okay. So, and isn't that what it's like? When you get into one of those, where you've really, 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 really tried, but you can't cut, and like, oh, man, I am, I am so burned out. So clarity about the kind of effort that needs to be made, clarity about context. And then through persistence, every once in a while there's a clear and easy connection with what's going on. And then the system starts to learn what present tense, mindful, receptive presence is like. Then it starts to see over and under efforting and to let these particular things go. So it gets better at the whole, whole thing. Fewer diversions, fewer crash landings. Then it starts to notice complexification. So I said earlier, the learning that's really required is from immediate experience through sustained mindful connection with whatever's arising. And one of the hardest things about finding that one seat and staying in it is that immediate experience is often obscured by enveloped by many clouds of theory, speculation, memory, extrapolation, preference, book learning, stories, self-view, and other kinds of fog. So we start to recognize at a certain point in this practice when this stuff is happening and redirect awareness away from that to something specific that we can actually directly know. And if we're uh, having a really uh, good series of mind moments, we might even recognize the presence of the fog as an object in of itself. Recognize the presence of papancha or all this elaboration that we put on immediate experience or use to crowd out and substitute for connection with immediate experience. But, you know, redirecting away from this particular fog requires um, a good deal of commitment and faith and resolve and renunciation because we kind of like the sky castles. Or at least we're used to being there. We're there so often. So if we can start to learn to cut through the complexification and remain in this very simple state of knowing, then we start to notice conditionality, which is starts to take up the investigation of how much control do I actually have right now? So the mind over time, through this knowing, starts to understand some things about its span of control. I more and more think of and talk about the awakening process is uh, being very involved, very uh, much about clarification about what our span of control is in the immediate sense. And when I say span of control, I'm talking right there at the mouth of the bubbling stream where experience comes into uh, existence in our knowing. So you may have noticed that Many, many, many times you have tried to make specific things happen. Things like try to make pain go away or pleasant states to stay or the breath to be clear or mindfulness to be strong or energy to be balanced or hindrances to be absent or insights to arise. Have you caught yourself like trying to like pry out an insight? Like, I know there's got to be one here somewhere, you know. <laughs> Let me just, like, dig around, <laughs> see if I can, I can pull it up, you know, like a, like a clam off the beach or something. 
So, have you also noticed that generally it doesn't work? <laughs> so, the realization that generally it doesn't work is actually the basis for an insight into dukkha, into the truth of the conditioned nature of arisings, and into the value of letting go. And it's also a first teaching about the truth of not-self, right? Because usually when this attempt to make things happen is going on, there's a great big solid self-sense or great big uh, I-self right in the middle, middle of it. I am going to make this happen or I need to do this or I need to make this go away. So it's kind of disheartening when you realize that the big I is not in charge. But this process of disillusionment is actually very, very useful knowledge. Because we're starting to see that we don't, in the immediate sense, actually control what arises moment to moment. Not self. We're not running the show. Oh, that's alarming. (laughs) But on the other hand, you know, we're not responsible in that kind of way. We don't have to supervise in that kind of way. So part of this is seeing, starting to see conditionality and seeing the lawfulness of things. So even though we're disillusioned and disappointed with our lack of control, in the immediate sense, we start to understand that things don't just happen randomly either. That there are causes and conditions that cause this experience to be this way or this experience to be that way or this thing to arise or this thing to pass away. It's just that those causes and conditions aren't under our immediate control. But they're not random. There's a lawfulness to it. And then we start to, to learn something really important, which is that the quality of attention, the kind of attention that we offer to a rising experience is the most important thing. Not what the experience is, the quality, the kind of attention we offer to a rising experience is the most important thing. So this discernment about wise attention and unwise attention starts to grow within our understanding. So for instance, the kind of attention that we give to the, uh, the arising of a hindrance determines whether it increases and proliferates or whether uh, it starts to subside sooner than it otherwise would. So we figure out we're not in control with what arises, but we learn to be close enough to what's arising so that we can actually find harmony with it. This whole process is actually about finding connected, harmonious relationship with the arising of moment-to-moment experience. So harmony with means there will not be suffering in relationship to. Harmony with means there will be wise intention present in the knowing of that experience. Qualities of renunciation or letting go, qualities of metta and compassion present. Harmony with means wise relationship to the current circumstances that are there with what's being known. So with this, then comes another major step, which is recognizing skillful and unskillful. The mind begins to be able to discern what states are suffering and which ones are not suffering. And this is not a small thing. Because Traditionally, our conditioning has been to go for pleasant experiences, to go towards pleasant states and sense experiences. That's the point of it. But we start to realize, well, maybe that's not the full point of it. We start to understand Vedana, this quality of pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor uh, unpleasant, 
we start to see that as a really important thing to notice. And, and we see how it can con- condition our grasping, our aversion. And we realize that that grasping is suffering. So we see greed, aversion, and delusion more easily, and there's less reactivity in the mind in relationship to it. Because we start to realize it's a lot better to see it and be in wise, harmonious relationship with it than it is to not see it and be run by it. We start to see wholesome states of mind and realize, okay, wise attention is part of what is causing these kinds of states to arise, to strengthen and to stay around a while. That grasping after them doesn't keep them, but mindful acceptance of them invites them, invites more of them. And with seeing this full range, the pleasant, the unpleasant, the neutral, the skillful, the unskillful, the the morally neutral, we get into ongoing connection with the full range of what we as human beings can experience. And this is really the foundation for equanimity, for the growth in the mind's capacity to be able to be with the whole ride with the same kind of continuous, close, receptive, caring presence. More mindfulness means more clear seeing, means more letting go, means more equanimity, which means more clear seeing, which means more letting go, which means more peace, which means more clear seeing. Right? So you enter into a virtual cycle with these... um, these insights and these understandings which can arise through this process of starting out in a very simple manner, just attending to your breath as you can find it. It all opens up from there. So that's a description of how the practice opens, how the wisdom opens which leads to the end of discretionary human suffering through the seeing into the causes of suffering and ending of the delusion which keeps them going. So that's a description of the wisdom um, aspect of how the path supports our happiness and well-being. But there are other things, uh, too, besides the cultivation of mindfulness that can support happiness. One thing that I think is important to mention is getting the big picture of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path is a tremendous gift, a tremendous benefit for all of us. So for a human being to have access to the path and teachings about a path that ends suffering, and guidance in how to walk that path, realizing that that is the case can be a source of great happiness for those who are practicing. And an additional piece of that is realizing that there's no subordination of your own experience to others that is required as part of this, no blind belief. It's all based on what you can test. This is doable and testable right in your own laboratory of the six sense doors. And I've been told a number of times by people in conversations when they start to understand how this opens and how uh, they can free themselves through the understanding that is arising within them, they'll say something like, well, I... I certainly don't feel like I know it all or, you know, I'm like I've really got it down or anything. But now I can see that it's possible and now I feel I have some tools. And that's huge to feel that you have an understanding, you have a direction, you have some confidence there and you have some tools that you can work with. How few people in the world can say that. 
another piece of this, um, another part of these gifts from the heart of the practice have to do with the attitudinal trainings. So if you look back at wise intention, the second step on the Eightfold Path, there's the training in renunciation that's part of that which I would characterize as letting go of seeing uh, pleasure as the guide, the direction, the main value in our lives. So that sounds like, uh, oh, letting go of pleasure as the marker, the goal, the whole point of it. it, Oh, does that mean we can't have pleasure? Of course not. But it means that we're going to let go of an addictive relationship to the pleasant. And this allows us to actually set a course, set a direction for our own lives, and permits us to take action without being governed by Vedana. Right? This is one of the main points in the Buddha's teaching around Vedana, is that if we don't see this quality of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality... Basically, we're robots. Right? Our buttons are getting pushed all the time. There's no discernment happening in the mind. There's no capacity to do what is called go against the stream. And we have to go against the stream, which conditions us towards delusion and suffering, if we want to be free from it. So it's not a straight uphill journey, but it certainly is attacking like this. So we become free from the compulsivity of that conditioning, which opens up all kinds of things for us. We can also develop a mind inclined towards and committed to non-harming. And a value in this is that It allows us to be trustworthy and trusted. This is very empowering for us if we're looking for uh, a way to contribute as a unifier, as an inclusive kind of being who brings harmony and reconciliation. We can actually become a kind of person that can help end cycles of long-conditioned dukkha by interjecting something new, something that isn't conditioned by the same uh, ignorance and reactivity going around and around and around. Something that isn't limited by fight, flight, and freeze responses. So an example of this that that I saw once uh, relatively recently was um, this African-American a teacher called Ianla Van Zant. So she's kind of somebody that shows up on Oprah's network uh, once in a while. But she's a minister and a very powerful uh, teacher, actually. There was an episode where she went to Ferguson right at the height of the stress, the distress, the conflict there. And, she, and they showed her. She went and she met with all the different communities who were present there. She met with the African-American community. She met with young men in the African community. She met with the police. She met with the ministers. She met with everybody. She was open to everybody. And you, you could see at certain points in her conversations with various people, various communities, you would see something was said and there arose in her some reaction to that. And you could physically see this. It would like start to arise and it's almost like you could see her energy go down through to the earth, down through the earth. And you would see like this energetic regrounding and reestablishment of a centeredness and a... a regaining of openness uh, to that person. 
This is the deep power of equanimity as manifested by a being who is committed to non-harming. In addition, this uh, non-harming, this metta and sila, ends our internal war. It ends our tendency towards an autoimmune reaction when we experience difficulty and suffering. Right? How many times does the mind turn back on itself in anger and in punishment when something difficult arises? We can teach ourselves wise relationship to our own suffering. This allows for our mind to actually become unified, internally unified, where the system responds to the knowing, the internal knowing of difficulty with kindness and self-support and foundational loyalty. This is a happiness, a great gift that's brought forth by practice. Another of the, the trainings that we practice. And this again comes from the Eightfold Path, the the trainings on sila, the third, fourth, and fifth um, steps on the Eightfold Path, the precepts, the practice of basic morality can cause what's uh, called the bliss of blamelessness to arise in the mind. Interesting. The bliss of blamelessness. Where you can, in good conscience, look at yourself, and at least from when you've made the commitment to sila and to the practice of the path, you're not going to let yourself do certain things or go in certain directions that cause harm to yourself or others. You're going to set some behavioral Uh, guidelines for yourself and as best you can keep them. And in the keeping of those is self-respect which supports our sense of confidence in being able to do practice. So often the practice of reflecting on your sila, reflecting on wholesome deeds that you've done is given to people on retreat to encourage them to come into a more direct conscious appreciation of the many wholesome acts of body, speech, and mind that they've done. And here again, this manifestation of trustworthiness gains the trust of others. It helps support healthy and enduring relationships. It keeps us from experiencing immediate and longer-term consequences that come from unskillfulness. So non-remorse supports calm, which supports samadhi, which supports the whole practice opening up. Freedom from that kind of turmoil you know, it's sometimes said that um, one of the things that the Buddha most liked to do was to re- reflect upon the fact that there was no being in any realm who had anything at all to fear from him. And that this was a cause for the arising of great joy and happiness within his mind. So there are many wholesome states that can arise out of practice as well. Things that are immediately joyful and happy. The Brahma Viharas as states, which also lead to concentration as a double bonus. And all these wholesome and wonderful qualities of mind support the opening of other wholesome and 
beautiful qualities of mind, in particular the paramis. These are perfections of heart that are fully seen, fully present in an awakened being. But they are also things that can be cultivated, things that can be recognized, things that can be developed by those of us who are walking the path. So you both have them and you can further development, develop them. So these are generosity, sila again, renunciation, wisdom, diligence, patience, truthfulness, resolve, metta, and equanimity. So if you are having um, some difficulty understanding how these could be a source of joy, let's do a thought experiment right now. Okay, so I'm going to read you two lists. And I want you to attend to your body as I read these lists, okay? So turn your awareness inside and just let yourself feel what there is to feel. Stinginess, immorality, greed, delusion, lack of courage, impatience, demanding, lack of integrity, weak will, hatred, reactivity. That's version, that's uh, flight number one. So flight number two, generosity, sila, renunciation, wisdom, Diligence, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving kindness, equanimity. So I know which set I like better. So an additional thing that opens for us in practice, in addition to the paramis and everything I've talked about previously, is The first, the lead horse of um, the Buddha's uh, usual way of offering the teachings to lay people, which is the cultivation of generosity. In order for the mind to cultivate generosity, it has to be willing to let go of what it perceives it doesn't need. So in order to do this, There's a loosening of the forces of grasping and clinging that are present within the mind. Then with this, there's a kind of joy and happiness that can arise when giving is directed to other beings and a kind of connection in that giving. Because the giving is an expression just not of generosity, but of also of other wholesome qualities like metta and compassion. And this helps support the capacity for self-respect. And when you take, undertake this as a diligent practice, it also tends to really trim down what you need in order to feel safe. When you really look at it. You know, because part of what we like to do is surround ourselves with things, you know, partly so we feel like we've got our 
stash there, you know? We've got our supply. And the mind starts to asking questions like, well, do I really need this? And if I, do I really need this? And in what way do I need this? Oh, maybe I don't need this. Maybe I can share this. Maybe this would be of benefit to someone else. And actually, maybe it would feel good to let go of this. Maybe this isn't actually needed. Maybe this is like extra. And maybe it's not only just extra, maybe it's actually a burden. Something that I'm dragging around. So with generosity comes a lot of these other lovely qualities. Appreciation, mudita, and gratitude. They're all closely linked together and they're all expressions of this mind that has a kind of brightness to it, a kind of uplift to it, a mind that's joined to life and to other beings. And these particular kinds of states really tend to counteract some deep, difficult states like depression and envy and jealousy and feelings of isolation and not enoughness. So this is really potent energy. Potent medicine. Additional gifts are clarity at the senses, you know? You noticed when you're present today, some of you had the uh, occasion to see and be fully present with the noticing of a bobcat up on the hill. Or maybe the sensory clarity of you know, looking at an orange and it's like, so orange. Or putting on a, uh, some clean clothes and feeling how good that feels or how good a shower feels. This is clarification of the senses, cleansing of the sense doors. That's also a beautiful thing. These are just basic sensory experiences, but there are also states that can arise in meditation and can be deliberately cultivated in meditation of deep concentration that are more pleasant in a different way than anything you'll ever experience through the sense doors. And of course we have the truth of the overall decrease in the arising of unwholesome states overall. Fewer of them arise to be experienced. When they arise they're weaker they stay less. I'm talking about the longer arc of practice here. They stay less. They're related to more wisely. There's less suffering present in relation to them when they actually are there. So the second arrow that tends to stay in the quiver more and more often When the suffering is there, it knows how to deal with it. Knows how to handle it. It's less personal, less likely get, to get freaked out. More equanimity. More balance. More understanding of what wise attention is. And from this comes often the gradual unbinding of what you might call karmic knots. Particularly dense or contracted patterns of Uh, difficulty or trauma, our own personalized uh, story that has our deepest suffering bound up in it. Those things can gradually loosen in practice. Not through going full tilt at them with the uh, insistence that they're going to yield to your aggression right now. That doesn't work at all. You may have noticed. But they they will gradually yield they will gradually unbind. The increase of wholesome states, more frequent, stronger, more often replaced by other wholesome states. Faith and confidence in your own ability to meet things. Relief in letting go, the finding of peace, finding of equanimity. And of course, last, but by no means least, the big point of the whole practice. Not only the relative happiness 
<clears throat> of what we can gain along the way, but an understanding that there is the potential to go pa- past our current threshold of understanding into a whole opening that basically has the potential to significantly transform the mind permanently. Where the body-mind system is no longer bound by conditionality uh, and the suffering of conditionality in the same way. Happiness not born from conditions. And this is the liberation through uh, non-clinging that the Buddha talks about as being within the range of our human potential. And it is within the range of our human potential. So whoever would have guessed by sitting down and paying attention to what's going on at your nostrils (laughs) or your belly or your chest or what's going on at the sense door of hearing. That's such a transformation of your whole system's understanding and functioning could happen. But it can and it does. So I'll just uh, encourage you in the same way that uh, the founder did, which is check it out. May we have the courage and confidence to fully engage in this great experiment. And may the merit of our practice be a cause and condition of our own awakening and that of other beings. May that be so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.